This is The Guardian. Today, the leaked documents and undercover sting operation, casting doubt on whether Gulf states can be trusted to fight the climate crisis. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The UN's annual climate meeting, called the Conference of the Parties, or COP, gets underway today in the United Arab Emirates. And you might think the UAE is one of the world's biggest oil and gas producers. It's next door to Saudi Arabia, home to the world's biggest oil company. This is a weird place to have a global climate summit. But these two Gulf states say they've changed. The climate crisis, they get it. And they have the ads to prove it. To many, it is a dream that seems impossible. A desert-covered nation seeking to lead the world in green transition has embarked on one of the most ambitious endeavours in the history of mankind. We need to attend. You know the ads. The stirring music, the gentle, soothing voice, a camera panning across a desert, or maybe it's a forest. Smiling farmers, serious-looking scientists, children at school or playing football. So inspiring. The Saudi Green Initiative from ambition to action. But beneath this smooth surface, investigative reporters, including Damien Carrington, The Guardian's environment editor, have been digging into the reality of Saudi Arabia and the UAE's commitment to fighting global heating. And this week, they've come back with two stories that are pretty jaw-dropping. One about what's really happening behind closed doors when the UAE meets with other countries to prepare for COP. And another about a Saudi government program that sounds pretty innocuous. It even has sustainability in the name, but which aims to delay the end of fossil fuels by decades at least. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, a secret plan to hook the developing world on Saudi oil. Damien, when did you first learn of the ODSP, the Oil Demand Sustainability Program? Well, I'd never heard of it, this Saudi program, but some journalists that we've worked with before at the Centre for Climate Reporting got in touch and told me that they had lifted the lid on this program, which is actually incredible in its scale and scope and its aims. And so they had gone undercover to find out some more about it, and I was all ears. Mm, Intriguing. And so... At that point, before you learned what they had discovered, what was publicly known about this office? Well, sorry, I hadn't heard of it myself, but uh, you know, you can go and look on the Saudi government's website. There's a two-page website with very brief amount of information, essentially saying that it's you know, a program to increase access to energy and transportation in uh, developing countries around the world. 
There is a curiosity in that the English language site calls it the Oil Sustainability Programme, which sounds sort of all right, making it a little bit more sustainable. But I think the um, the reality is on the Arabic website, where it's called the Oil Demand Sustainability Programme, which uh, really gives you the first clue as to what the real intention of this uh, enormous uh, plan is. Mm, okay. One sounds like it could be about making oil sustainable. That could be good, I guess. The other about keeping up demand for oil. Pretty different goals. And so what did you and this team from the Centre for Climate Reporting and Channel 4 News do next? So uh, these reporters who've uh, experienced in this thing posed as investors. So this enormous plan, the Oil Demand Sustainability Plan, I mean, it's backed by all the big Saudi institutions, their $700 billion sovereign wealth fund, Saudi Aramco, the world's biggest oil company, Sabic, which is a giant chemicals company, all the ministries. And so for that point of view, they were looking for people to invest. So these uh, reporters posed as investors interested in uh, making a buck and had a nice presentation from officials and uh, a long meeting. Hi, uh, Nawaf. I can't see you. Hello. I can hear you though. In a video call Sting, Saudi OSP officials think they're talking to like-minded oil investors. And my colleague David will be joining too. Okay. But they're being secretly recorded and the undercover team hits gold. So what did they learn from these officials about the real nature of the ODSP? So what it turns out is that there's 46 different uh, projects which uh, come under the umbrella of the ODSP. And the one thing that they've all got in common, they discovered, was that they all increase the demand for oil and gas. And when, of course, uh, as most people know, the very rich country that Saudi Arabia is, is off the back of its uh, oil and gas exports, which is by far its greatest revenue. So the detail was really fascinating. So they were going for everything. And as I say, they were looking in developing countries mostly where you know access to energy electricity say or to transport is not always easy but they were looking at cars they were even talking about gearing up with a, a car manufacturer to make a really cheap uh, combustion engine model that could be sold all over the world they were talking about potentially acquiring a low-cost air- airline to, again to kind of increase demand for jet fuel they even talked about trying to facilitate supersonic air travel which they pointed out uh, very happily that uh, you uses three times more jet fuel than regular aviation. It was slightly mind-boggling, the scale of what uh, they had in mind. An extraordinary admission from the Saudis that they're trying to artificially raise oil demand in a climate crisis. My impression is that with the issues of climate change, there's a risk of kind of declining oil demand. So. The OSP has kind of been set up to artificially stimulate demand. Uh, yes, it is one, one of the aspects that we are uh, trying to do. So this is like a massively cashed up Saudi program that goes around the world trying to increase demand for oil. Exactly. So um, we spoke to um, uh, someone called Mohamed Adal, who, who runs a think tank called PowerShift Africa, and he was extremely blunt. He said, this is the Saudis behaving just like drug dealers. They're trying to get us hooked on their products, and it's repulsive, is how he described it. And how exactly would they try to hook these nations on fossil fuels? 
as I mentioned, some of the things before, they're interested in kind of boosting bus use as long as they've got combustion engines. They're uh, also trying to provide electricity in places. So these things called power ships, which kind of rock up next to the coast if there's a need for electricity on shore. problem with these ships is they burn something called heavy fuel oil, which is as uh, polluting as the, the, the name suggests. So yeah, it was uh, really, let's say, a kind of incredible scale. Okay, so the Saudis are going around the world offering developing countries help to get more cars on the road, as long as those are petrol cars, helping them to get increased access to electricity, but through these heavily polluting power ships. They're saying, you've got problems, we've got solutions, and they all involve using lots of oil, which conveniently they can provide at attractive prices. So that's the plan. Tell me why the Saudis would be doing this. What are they seeing happening out there in the world that is worrying them? So, I mean, the Saudi government is uh, extremely wealthy, but that is off the back of fossil fuels, oil and gas in particular, and um, certainly in richer parts of the world, renewable energy is taking off and is definitely cheaper than than fossil fuels in uh, almost everywhere. Electric cars are really taking off. There's exponential growth in Europe, in China, and various other places. So you don't have to join too many dots to realise that the demand for their product is uh, going to fall in many parts of the world. And so they're trying to establish this kind of fossil fuel-based infrastructure in these countries which are developing as we speak, rather than those countries sort of skipping the fossil fuel phase, which uh, rich countries went through and, and, and leapfrogging directly to you know, the clean green alternatives, which are generally cheaper in the long run as well. Explain that to me. Why does the fact that they were targeting developing countries in particular make this such a dangerous strategy? So there is a problem with energy access in the world. There are many people in poorer countries who don't have access to electricity, and of course that limits their educational uh, opportunities, their health opportunities, working opportunities. And so there's a choice in these countries uh, about whether you go to the fossil-fueled options which currently exist, like you know, coal-fired power stations or petrol power cars and so on, or whether you can skip directly in bringing these countries, these people, the development that they absolutely need, but skipping over that dirty phase and and bringing forward the clean green technologies. Now, there's a lot of people in that situation, and certainly the United Nations, the World Bank, have said very clearly that if those countries do not leapfrog the fossil fuel phase, then the total emissions will be put out by these countries as they develop will blow all the carbon budgets that we have in terms of trying to you know, restrict warming to one and a half or two degrees and, and avoid climate catastrophe. So you spoke to someone who compared this to drug dealing. This would be like not just continuing to supply drugs to existing addicts, but actually going out and trying to find new ones. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, they're trying to kind of install that fossil fuel infrastructure, whether it's transport or power or uh, materials as well, they're interested in get that installed and then you have to supply that infrastructure for you know, the coming decades. So yeah, it's, it's kind of creating a user base, if you want to put it that way. And so when you ask the Saudis, why are you doing this? What do they say? What's their version of it? So there was a deafening silence from uh, the Saudi government. We gave them plenty of opportunity to respond to us. They um, chose not to, which was fine. You know, in terms of the, the the small bits of information that they have put out there, they do try and portray this as a, you know, as a kind of a good program, trying to bring access to energy and access to transport to people in parts of the world that don't have it already. The problem, as we've discussed, is that uh, they want to do that in a, a dirty way rather than a clean way. 
Okay, so this idea of developing countries just leapfrogging the fossil fuel stage, going straight to renewables, is one of the things that will be discussed at COP this year, which is being held in another Gulf oil-producing country, the UAE. Now, the very fact that this summit is in the UAE seems like a contradiction on the face of it. So tell me, what has the lead-up to this summit been like? Yeah, so, I mean, when... um the president of COP, and that's the person who sort of corrals all 197 countries and tries to get them moving in the same direction. When that president was announced as uh, Sultan Al-Jabur, who's also the chief executive of the uh, UAE's state oil company, it was pretty surprising to everybody. So the person running the summit is also the head of the UAE's state oil company? That's right. He's an oil baron. So that obviously created a lot of suspicion and disquiet amongst uh, many people in the, the climate change field. You know, His argument is that he knows that world. He also runs a renewable energy company. He's been the UAE's climate envoy. So if anyone's going to bring everybody to the table, it's going to be him. So uh, that's the big experiment that's going to happen at COP28. We are way off track. And the hard reality is that in order to achieve this goal, global emissions must fall 43% by 2030. Okay, so it's a big experiment in seeing what happens when you put an oil company CEO in charge of climate talks. And this week we got an early glimpse at the results. Tell me what you learned. Yeah, this was pretty shocking. So some colleagues at the Centre for Climate Reporting obtained briefing documents. So one of the important jobs of the president of COP is in the run-up to the summit. He goes off all around the world, has all these bilateral meetings with governments um, from China to Colombia to America to India, saying, okay, what can you do? How can you help me get a great deal done at COP28 because of reducing emissions and all those other things? The thing that was frankly shocking about these briefing documents is that they had talking points and, quote, asks included in them from the state oil company, which is called Adnoc. With just days to go before the UN's climate change summit, the president of COP28 is facing calls to resign after leaked documents seen by the BBC appear to show that the United Arab Emirates has been using its role as host as an opportunity to strike oil and gas deals. So in this diplomatic meeting, which was meant to be about climate change and about um, meant to be about saving the world, if you like, Adnoc had been putting in talking points and asks, which were to do with its commercial business. So it's saying to China, we're interested in liquid natural gas. You know, can we work with you on some projects there with Colombia? It's saying, can we help you develop your fossil fuels? And um, you know, it created an absolute uh, stink this week because the president has to be seen as uh, independent, acting in good faith, and certainly not being driven by the interests of his own country. Let me try to get this straight. The president of COP, who's the head of an oil company, is using meetings that are supposed to be about helping to organise these climate talks to drum up business for the UAE's fossil fuel industry. That's what it looked like, yeah. I mean, certainly the plans were there. We don't actually know for a fact how many were followed through. Uh, Some of the documents that the um, reporters uh, obtained showed that at least one country had followed up on a deal afterwards. But it doesn't really matter whether or not the deals were done. That was absolutely not the forum. But, you know, it's not the first uh, thing that we've learned. I've I've been putting the UAE under a fair bit of scrutiny over the past few months in the run-up to COP and discovered a whole bunch of stuff. Um, actually, before on, on Today in Focus, we talked about uh, this email scandal where it turned out the oil company was able to read the emails coming and going from the 
COP28 office. But but since then, I've discovered that the United States Arab Emirates said that 20 years ago it was going to ban flaring, right? So flaring is this excess gas when you're drilling for oil, some gas comes up, you don't really want it, you can't uh, be bothered to capture it, so you burn it. They said they'd stop that, doing routine flaring 20 years ago. But I worked with some scientists to show that actually they're flaring almost every day in some of the fields. Wow. So, you know, they haven't been walking the talk, shall we say. I mean, who could have foreseen this? Who could have foreseen that putting an oil company boss in charge of the world's leading climate summit would not go well? Yeah, that was certainly the um, impression from certainly a lot on the kind of NGO side after these revelations about the briefing documents that we've talked about. There was quite a few of them saying, I told you so, what did you expect? But, you know, we're too far into this now. There's not going to be a change of uh, president at the COP. And so if he comes good on his promise and turns out that an oil man can bring all these people to the table, especially those uh, oil and gas companies who at the moment are planning to produce probably around double the oil and gas we could burn without uh, torching the world. Um, If he can bring them to the table and and, and get them to be good faith partners in uh, cutting emissions and addressing climate change, well, everyone will take their hats off to him and clap. But uh, as I say, on the run into it, in terms of uh, all the things that we've discovered, uh, it doesn't look too promising at this stage. And when you put these questions to the UAE, ask them about these claims, these leaked documents, what do they say? Well, specifically on the leaked briefing documents, um, they said they were inaccurate and hadn't been used in meetings. They didn't specify what was inaccurate about them. So, you know, listeners can make up their minds what they think of that particular uh, response. Coming up, after months of scandals, what to expect from climate negotiations over the next two weeks. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. 
Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Damien, COP starts today. You're in Dubai to cover it. It's pretty easy to be cynical about the next two weeks, but what are you expecting will actually happen? What's on the table and what's the progress that could be made? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly easy to be cynical about COPs and probably the easier the more you go to them (laughs) because they're big, crazy meetings. This is going to be the biggest ever, 70,000 people. But the, the, the issue is that there isn't any other forum through which progress of this type can be made. And I remember last year in particular, someone emphasising to me that this is the only forum in the world where the people who've done the least to cause the climate crisis and are suffering the most from it, that is the people in the poorer developing nations who don't have the capacity to to cope with or to recover from all these climate disasters. This is the only forum where they get to sit down across the table as an equal, because all 197 countries have equal footing in this process. They sit down across that table and say, we're dying, we're losing our lives, we're losing our livelihoods, what are you going to do about it? And that kind of moral authority does actually carry quite a lot of weight in the negotiations, and that was shown with um, last year with this establishment of what they've called the Loss and Damage Fund, which is uh, a fund which doesn't have any money in it as yet, but that's uh, that's what's going to happen at COP28. But this fund is intended to help uh, countries recover from climate disasters that are already happening all around the world. And so over the next fortnight, when they sit across from these big polluters, what will these smaller, vulnerable countries be pushing for? There'll be a big fight about whether or not the the countries combined at the end will call for a phase down or even a phase out of fossil fuels. That's never happened before in almost 30 years of climate talks, despite fossil fuels being the root cause of uh, the climate emergency. There's also talk of tripling renewable energy. And then money. Money's always important. So, you know, rich countries have promised to uh, provide climate finance, whether that's for reducing emissions by supporting clean energy. That, in fact, comes back to the Saudi Arabia story we were talking about um, at the start in that if rich countries provided the funding for these developing nations to install the clean green technology, uh, then they wouldn't be so tempted, I imagine, by uh, Saudi Arabia's uh, deals that are being proffered. In terms of other money, they need money to adapt so that they can prepare for the impacts of climate change and then also the loss and damage fund. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's always a lot of stake. Damien, Does the fact of what we've learned about the Saudis, that they are going around the world trying to lock countries into a high carbon economy, does that put pressure on rich countries to have to bite the bullet? Like if they don't want developing countries tempted by Saudi deals, they have to actually step up and offer far more than words. They need to offer funding, actually make it easier for these countries to do that leapfrogging that we all hope they do. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. It's extremely clear. Countries would choose um, the cleaner option because it's just better technology. It doesn't bring air pollution. You know, you don't end up paying endless uh, fossil fuel bills. You're not at the mercy of the, the incredible volatility of the international oil and gas markets. You know, most renewables is kind of safe, homegrown and reliable. So absolutely, they would take that um, option if they had it. And I, I think absolutely, that's why a big part of the, um, you know, the COP debate and some of the fiercest uh, arguments and discussions are, are around finance. 
finance. In some, t- in some ways, it's really simple. You know, if you want to build a solar farm in India, you might have to borrow money at, I don't know, 15% interest rate. You know, if you do that in the UK, if Rishi Sunak would let you build one, then you'd probably borrow 5% or something like that. So it's these kind of problems which need to be solved. They are solvable, but certainly I think, you know, this uh, enormous Saudi programme about which we've uh, revealed a lot more this week would, would add to the pressure. All right. So that is the stage for this COP summit, this this unprecedented one in some ways, given who's running it. How do you see this meeting and its importance in the context of the bigger fight to get global heating under control? I think this year is going to be really extraordinary. And I think it's a moment of truth for the fossil fuel industry. Let's be frank, they've, they've lied to us for decades about the impact of climate change. Were they causing it? What was the problem? You know, they denied and delayed. Now, They've got their man in charge. They've got an oil baron running the thing. You know, if they can't come to the table and step up and and take action, and they have not done that, categorically have not done that to this point, if they're not going to do it at this COP, I don't think they're ever going to do it. And at least we'll know then that, you know, the fossil fuel industry is is our enemy when it comes to climate change. Finally, Damien, I said it would be easy to be cynical about this COP, but would it be right to feel like this process is pretty hopeless and we shouldn't bother with it. Sometimes it's easy to kind of underestimate the impact of, you know, the declaration at the end. It's a kind of bunch of words. It's a political declaration. But I think in the real world, it does set a direction for, you know, countries and companies and, and, and businesses and so on who are working out, you know, which direction they should be going in. And, you know, this is unusual for me, Mike. We spoke a few times and I'm not usually the, the bearer of good news, but I'm going to say something positive here. Oh, here we go. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to say something positive here, which is that, you know, when the Paris deal was struck in 2015, we were probably on track for three and a half, four degrees of global heating. And that's that's Armageddon scenario. That's like you know whole areas of the world uninhabitable and, and so on. That's terrible. The progress that's been made in the eight years since then means we're on target now for probably around two and a half, maybe slightly higher than that, with the pledges that are already in place. Hmm. So there's definitely been progress. The problem is that you know 2023 has been this crazy year. You know we've seen records smashed all over the world. There's been terrible heat waves. There's been wildfires. There's been droughts. There's been floods. You know climate change is here right now, causing damage. And you know that's with what 1.3 or 1.4 degrees of uh, global heating on a global average basis. So two and a half or or higher is still going to be really much worse than it is today and really bad. So there's a lot to do, but I, I, I would take issue with people who say the COP process has failed completely. We're certainly nowhere near where we need to be and time's running out really fast and you know, the urgency has to be there, that's for sure. But you know, in the absence of any other options, COP is what we have. Damien, enjoy Dubai and come back in a couple of weeks and tell us how it all went. I will do my very best, thank you. That was Damien Carrington, The Guardian's environment editor, who'll be reporting from Dubai for the next two weeks with many others from our environment team who are the best in the business. Their coverage is at theguardian.com. For more on these climate talks, listen to this week's Science Weekly. Out today, where The Guardian's Fiona Harvey breaks down what we can expect from the next fortnight. You can find that wherever you listen to Today in Focus. It's called Science Weekly. For more of Damien, on the 5th of December, The Guardian's going to be hosting a live event called COP28. Can fossil fuel companies transition to clean energy? He'll be on the panel with Cristiana Figueres, Tessa Khan and Mike Coffin for a live stream discussion on whether big gas and oil companies really can become green energy giants. You can find the tickets at theguardian.live. That's theguardian.live. 
And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Tom Glasser. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. And we're back with you tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.